seats again. It's good to be here uh, worshiping with you and bringing God's word to you this morning. And so we are back in Galatians. After a little while, believe it or not, we're actually going to go back to Galatians and keep making our way through. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read here in a little bit verses 1 through 10. And so my goal is over the next two weeks to kind of unpack verses 1 through 10. Um, we'll see how far we get uh, through today. But as you turn there, let me just remind you where we're at. The emphasis of the letter is Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Galatia. Um, and his emphasis is to insist that we are justified by faith alone and not by works of the law. And so Paul aims in this letter to defend this truth, because there are enemies that want to distort that truth and say that you have to do more things in order to be saved. And Paul is saying, no, we have to defend this truth, and we have to protect the purity of the gospel against those who want to preach a false gospel. And so today we are going to see another example. So if you would, right there, uh, look in your Bibles. We're going to read verses 1 through 10, um, and uh, kind of go through verses 1 through 5 this morning. So this is God's Word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when I, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry for, to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave their right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so big picture, where we're at, what's happening here is we see that Paul continually faces opposition. He's preaching God's word, and yet his enemies keep on wanting to, the, uh, you know, stand against him. And so he preaches, and he is preaching that one does not have to be circumcised, uh, one does not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Okay, so the issue here is circumcision. And so he has these enemies, therefore he goes to Jerusalem, he presents to the apostles the gospel message that he has been preaching, and ultimately he receives their commendation. And so a few things that I want you to know here about first five verses. So verse one, if you look there with me, um, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Uh, the timing of when this happened, it's hard to know exactly. It doesn't really matter. But what you have to keep in mind is that this was around the time, most likely, uh, when Acts 15 is happening. Acts 15, the council uh, in Jerusalem, when they ultimately make the decision that, no, like, 
they, they declare like, no, the Gentiles do not have to get circumcised uh, in order to be saved. So this was around more or less that time. Whether it happened before, during, or after, not a huge, uh, you know, place, not a huge role in this, uh, maybe more next week. Uh, but I do want you to see one thing, is that after 14 years, okay, Paul has been preaching and teaching for 14 years now and facing opposition for 14 years in his ministry. So it has not been easy for Paul. Um, so what I do want you to see is Paul's perseverance to teach and preach God's word even in great conflict for that long. And the question that you should be asking, one of them at least, is how can somebody endure that much opposition for that long of a period and still be faithful to the message? And the second thing about verse 1 there, we're going to see there's two men, right? We have um, Barnabas and Titus. So Barnabas is a companion of Paul, fellow preacher, uh, you know, good, righteous man, as God's word calls him. And then you have Titus. Titus, as we see later in the Bible, he is uh, very influential in Crete uh, and Corinth, in the churches of Corinth and Crete. But what matters to us for this morning is that Titus was a Greek. Okay, Titus was a Greek, Barnabas was a Jew. And we'll get to why that matters shortly. So look at verse 2. Then he says, I went up because of a revelation. What is this revelation? What does this mean? This means God literally commanded him to go directly. God gave him a word, Paul saying, Paul, you need to go to Jerusalem. And so Paul obeyed. Um, and so he says, why did he go? Why, verse 2, to make sure, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And so he goes up to make sure that he is not running in vain, which honestly probably brings us to maybe our main question that we have to answer in this passage is, so far, right, you have Paul, and he spent all of Galatians chapter 1 basically saying how the gospel is not man's gospel. It does not depend on man, right? Verse 10 says I'm, he's not seeking the approval of man. You know, he didn't even receive it. He wasn't even taught the gospel by men. Okay, so he, this does not depend on men. And later, right, in our passage, um, verse 6, he says that what they, those who are influential make, added nothing to me. Okay, so he's saying... The gospel does not depend on man. That's what Paul's argument has been in chapter 1. And now we have Paul saying, now I'm going to go to the apostles to receive the commendation. Okay, which one is it? Which one is it? Why is Paul saying that he, why is Paul now seemingly going to get their approval when he just made, made the case that he does not need man's approval to preach the gospel? So we'll get to that question. Because the issue at hand, verse 3, is all about circumcision, right? Circumcision is the thing at play right here. Uh, we'll see it's here. Titus, it says, was not forced to be circumcised. And that's the thing that the issue that his enemies took issue with. And why wasn't, was he not circumcised? Uh, verse 4 tells us why. Now, I think the ESV actually makes it a little hard for us to really see the connection between those two verses because of that yet. Um, so yet because of false brothers. But I do want you to see that there, there's the connection between 3 and 4. And so as you read this, don't get hung up on the yet. The, the yet is important because he's talking about the enemy. So there's, there's, a, there's a certain level of there's a difference that he's talking about. But there is a connection. And so what, how, how it's e easy, more easily read that I want you to see it as you look at your Bible is that even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And that because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Okay, so there is a connection. He did not get circumcised because of the enemies and, their and they wanted to spy out their freedom that they had in Christ. 
which ultimately brings us to verse 5, which I think is a very good theme verse, really, of all of the letter. Uh, the reason all of all Paul's actions, the reason why Titus doesn't get circumcised is so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is why Paul does everything in his ministry. And so as we walk through some important passage, um, issues there in our passage, um, you should be asking yourself, okay, why does this matter? Why is this important for me today to understand? And I have three things. One is, how are you going to persevere, like Paul, in the midst of opposition, like Paul, who endured 14 years and more, you know, of enemies constantly criticizing him, especially if you know yourself and you know you're tired, you're weak, how are you going to stand firm? Where are you going to find strength and comfort in the battle? So that's why it's important. Secondly, it's important because maybe you're here this morning and you th- feel like you are running in vain. Okay, Paul's saying, I wanted to make sure that I had not run and I was not running in vain. Do you ever feel like you may be running in vain? Paul does not want his work to be for nothing. And likewise, you should also want your work, your life, to count for something, to bear fruit for Christ, right? That should be our desires as Christians. But do you often feel like your Christian life is just all in vain? What you try never works. How can you make sure that you're not running in vain? Well, this passage will give us some help and encouragement in that. And lastly, and most importantly, the gospel, the gospel message is at stake here. If we do not understand why this is so important, we will err in our presentation of the gospel and the way that we live it. Um, and we would not want to do that. So with that, let us turn to God in prayer. Most gracious Father, thank you, Lord, that you know our frame. Lord, you know that we are here today and gone tomorrow. Lord, you know that we are weak. You know that we, we put on a front often and we want to be so strong for you and we want to do all these things. And yet at the same time, Lord, you know that we need your help. And Father, you provide us with encouragement and help and strength. And so, Father, thank you for not leaving us alone uh, in our weaknesses and our sins. Would you help us this morning to look to you? Would you strengthen us and give us confidence and comfort in your word that we as a church would be able to stand firm in love and truth to be with us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first question is, why does Paul go to Jerusalem? Why does he go? Again, the man, he's been making a case. This, man, this gospel is not man's gospel. It doesn't depend on man to triumph. Why does he now turn to man out of all people? He should just say, like, it doesn't matter. Why does he turn to man? Two reasons. Firstly, he's commanded by God, right? Verse 2 tells us, I went up because of a revelation. So God literally told him, Paul, you need to go do this. Okay, so he follows and obeys God. Why would God want him to do that, though? Two, second reason, in order to make sure he was not running in vain. Now, this concept is uh, repeated in a lot of Paul's letters. So Paul often makes reference to this. Either he wants to make sure that he's not running in vain, that his efforts aren't for nothing, or that he wants to make sure that his people are not walking in vain. And so what this means is he wants to be able to have something to show for his efforts. He wants to be able to work for Christ, give his life for Christ, and be able to say, Christ, God, here it is, what you have been, the fruit that you've been able to give me. He wants his ministry to come for something, to not be left empty-handed. He wants to be able to bear fruit for Christ, ultimately. So again, the question is for all of us. Do we think about that? Do we think about that as Christians? That the aim of our life is not to bear fruit for our own lives and so that our lives could be happy and easy and comfortable, 
but is our life to actually bear fruit for the one who has saved us? Do we even consider that maybe our lives could be running in vain, that we're giving our lives to so many things and not for the sake of the kingdom of Christ? Are you seeking to make your time and your effort and your money count so that others would know him, so that God would be glorified? Or are you indifferent? Indifferent. But the question still hasn't been answered, right, in a sense. Why does he still have to turn to the apostles, right, for confirmation that he's not running in vain? Why man? Well, and the short answer, I believe, is that he is doing it for the sake of the church. He's doing it for the sake of the churches that he's preaching at, uh, so that they would find comfort and strength in the teaching of their shepherd. Okay, how is that the case? Put yourself in the situation for a second. So you have Paul, who came, who planted the church that you are now a member of, and you're hearing, you're sitting under his preaching and his teaching, and, but yet every time that you leave his teaching on Sunday mornings, you, get, you hear criticism. You hear criticisms. You hear, Paul shouldn't even be teaching. He's teaching illegitimately. You hear, the gospel that you're hearing is not actually the gospel, the true gospel. You're hearing a false gospel. His enemies constantly accuse Paul of distorting the gospel. And that happens for at least 14 years. So imagine being a congregant in a church where that is all that you face as you hear your pastor preaching and giving his life to you, but everything else you hear from the outside is persecution and conflict. Think about how difficult that would be to endure. We already know from the chapter 1, uh, verse 6, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ. So we already know that the enemies are actually gaining ground. Many have actually left the church because of the enemies and what they're trying to portray. And so Paul sees this. Paul sees this danger and says, I do not want my efforts to be in vain. And so he turns to God's people, in this case, the Council of the Apostles. Now, note, throughout this, his message didn't change. It's not like Paul's changed his message before he went to the Apostles. The Apostles ultimately affirmed his ministry, and that was a help. But that wasn't just a help to Paul. also was to the churches that he was overseeing because it helped silence his enemies. This is the true gospel that is being taught by Paul, but not just by Paul, also by the apostles of Jesus. So the fact that the gospel is not man's gospel, okay, we cannot get this wrong, the fact that the gospel is not man's gospel does not mean that there isn't strength and encouragement that comes from God's people, right? If you've been here in our church, hopefully you have felt that. Because God actually helps you endure in the midst of difficult seasons through real means. He uses real people. And the church is one of the means that God has given you for your edification. The church is here to help you when you're weak. The church is here for encouragement when it feels like you are the only Christian, right, in your workplace or in your line of study, and nobody else believes what you believe, and everyone thinks that you're crazy for what you believe and what you stand for. There should be comfort and encouragement knowing that you are not alone in your beliefs, right? The thing is, yeah, you should not be alone in your beliefs. God has always maintained a faithful remnant, so that, is, that should be something you should think about. If you are alone in your beliefs and only you hold your beliefs, then that should be a little scary for you because you're not the only one who's under God's care and shepherding and protection. God has given you his church and people, real people, to walk with you in this fight. So you get discouraged. Don't do this alone. Right? There's many ways that this plays out. Right? When you sin, when you sin and you feel the weight of your sin, and then you turn and com- you f- confess that sin to your brothers, and the comfort that it is to hear their forgiveness and to hear the affirmation that they still love you, even though you've sinned and you've done great things, and you feel awful for what you've done, and to hear them come and tell you that they still love you, 
as Christ has loved you and the comfort that there is to know that they've forgiven you, that's wonderful, right? It'd be hard to endure under that on your own. You know, that's why another reason why baptism, right, is a big deal. It, it strengthens, it confirms, it affirms your faith because you have people who love you who say, yes, I see that this man, this woman is a believer and they're walking. And it affirms your faith. It should be a day that you look back to. It actually encourages your faith. And so for you, ask yourself, are you seeking shelter? Are you seeking help in the church? Or, on the other hand, are you trying to just do things on your own? Are you a lone soldier trying to do things by yourself? But if you want, church, if you want to be a fruitful Christian, one that isn't just comfortable with where they are at, then you have to be able to be willing to work as unto the Lord alongside your brothers and sisters. They are a help to you. This is what Calvin says. John Calvin says, The agreement of all who teach in the church is a powerful aid for the confirmation of faith. All right? You have real ways to be strengthened and encouraged in the battle. So if you are actually walking on the narrow path, you should actually be rubbing shoulders with people in your church and with people who are being faithful. Okay, there's many that God has called. If you're on your own and you're not rubbing shoulders with people, then be careful, right? Be careful. There should be a warning for you that you're not walking in the wide path. Don't give your life and your time and your efforts in all sorts of places and leave the church starving. Right? If you actually want to see fruit in your efforts, then give it to something that will last forever. And what will last forever? God's word and God's bride, right? Every organization that you can give your life to will ultimately fail and go away. Every movement is here for a little while and then it will eventually perish. But the church is not a movement. It is the people that God has purchased with his own blood. Every organization will not last, but Christ's church will last until the end because God will make sure that it is so. And we will live with our husband forever. So that means that when all the members are doing their role and loving the church, and there will be fruit that comes from the church, right? There will be fruitful churches, there will be fruitful families, there will be fruitful ministries, and all of it will bring, bring glory to God. And that's what we want, right? We want to bring glory to God. And I hope that's what you would want to. So find strength. Find strength in the church. When it seems hard, when it seems like you're weak, don't neglect that you can run to people who can actually help you and love you and would be glad to do that because God has done that for them. And also, as an aside, like, you should be encouraged. Like, in this hard season that we have been as a church, you know, what our senior pastor hasn't been able to serve us as he would like to, you should feel encouraged and strengthened that there are other churches who want to love us, who affirm what we believe, who say what they're doing is worthy of me coming and preaching at their church. Like, that should really be a, strengthen, a strengthening thing to you. The fact that there are other people out there who love us, and who want us to see us do well, even in the midst of much hostility. So be thankful for those men and for those women. So that's the first point, is run to God's church as the help that he um, has for you. Because what was the issue at stake, right? What was the thing that was causing Paul so much trouble? Is the issue of circumcision, right? Ultimately, what Paul was being attacked, but was, what Paul was being attacked for was, what does one need to be saved? This is key. This is key to our understanding of the gospel, how to be saved. Do we, are we saved by faith alone, or do we need faith plus other things? Do we need faith plus circumcision, or is it just faith in Jesus? And so you have two gospels. You have a battle of two gospels in this, 
in this instance. On the one hand, right, you have Paul. He insists on the fact that Christ's death is sufficient to pay for the sins of God's people, that whoever would come to him in faith, trusting that he is the only way to be forgiven, will be saved. That on the cross, Jesus took on the sins of the world and paid for their penalty so that whoever would turn to him, renounce their works, renounce themselves, and say, say, I identify not with myself and my works, but with Christ, trusting that he's the only one, then their sins would actually be forgiven. Nothing else is needed, right? That is Paul's teaching. That is the true gospel. But on the other hand, you have the false gospel, the false teachers, the false brothers, Paul's brothers here in our passage. And they would say, yes, you do need faith in Jesus. They would affirm that much. Say, yes, you do need to believe, but that's not enough. Like, we have, there's more things that you have to do. In this case, right, you have to live by the law. You have to do works of the law. And the issue here was circumcision. You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Because without circumcision, they would claim you cannot be saved. Now, this is not an old battle. This is an old battle. This is not a finished battle. That's what I meant to say. This is not a finished battle. This fight is still alive today, right? It lives in our church. It lives in our world. Um, And we have to remain firm. We have to remain firm and not to budge on this issue. Just like Paul wants to be zealous about this, to, to protect it, we should also want to stand firm on the gospel. You are not justified by your works. You are justified by Christ's finished work on the cross and that alone. So to see how it's still alive today, right? I mean, when you think about, okay, what are some obvious examples of people living by faith and by works? The clearest example, right, is the Catholic Church, right? You can't just, like, shy away from that. Um, Just like the enemies of Paul, right, the Catholic Church is teaching a false gospel. Because it requires more than the blood of Jesus to be made right with God. Now, if you've been in our church for some time, you know, we know that we have taught, you know, we have warned you against the teachings of the Catholic Church. So I'm not going to go too into depth today. But I do want to press on a specific point just to help you see how important this is. Because the world, what the world wants you to believe is that these distinctions don't really matter that much. Like, the world so desperately wants you to affirm them and say, well, you know, we believe pretty much the same thing, like, I can be accepted just like you've been accepted, right? Every religion basically, in some sense, tries to adapt Jesus and say, oh, we believe in Jesus too. We be- because we believe in Jesus too, we're okay. But you have to maintain distinctions. You have to maintain the purity of the gospel and preserve that. That is your calling as a church member. <clears throat> so how much does this really matter, right? If you sit with a Catholic, you know, you might sit down and ask them what they believe about things, how they live, what their worldview is like, you might actually find out, oh, we agree on a lot of different things, don't we? Like, man, like their worldview seems really similar to us. Like, we have agreement on these things. Like, they stand against abortion. Like, oh, yeah, like, the world hates abortion. I hate abortion. You know, they stand, you know, I think, for the most part, on the roles of men and women in marriage. These things that we find really important, and we're like, oh, yeah, we affirm that, too. You know, all of a sudden start thinking, maybe there's a lot more agreement than I thought. Right? And the temptation will just to say, like, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's really not that, diff- that different. They believe in Jesus, some would claim. Right? They say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And you believe in Jesus, right? So shouldn't that be enough for you? Like, they believe in Jesus. That's, that's good enough, right? Can't we just agree and treat them as brothers and sisters? No, right? No. We must reject it. This is a really big deal in the same way that it is a big deal in Paul's text right here. In Paul's circumstances. The Catholic Church insists on faith plus works of the law. 
And the enemies of Paul are doing the same thing. They're insisting in faith plus works of the law, circumcision. Paul is not content just living in peace with his enemies and teaching everything. He's not even content submitting to them, even for a moment, right? Verse 5 tells us, To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. Paul was not going to give them an inch of ground in this battle so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So this matters. Why is this such a big deal? Because if works of the law were needed for salvation, okay, if you believe that, then Christ's work on the cross would be incomplete. And not only would you be minimizing what Christ has done, you would actually be putting your faith in an incomplete gospel. That gospel that is not enough to save you will never save you because your works could never add to it. So if you think, right, okay, my salvation is 99% faith in Christ and 1% my works, you will not be saved because that 1% will not gain you anything. And as cross that's only effective 99% of the time is not the true cross of Christ. It is an incomplete gospel, and therefore it is powerless to save. Your works, church, do not add anything to your salvation. It is only faith in Christ. Ultimately, they would say that they have faith, but there's not real faith in that it could actually save me because something else would be needed. And so, Maybe I'm going to just keep on going in the point there because I know this is a temptation for all of us. So I'm just going to keep digging in and you tell me when it gets too uncomfortable, right? So for us to see just how much uh, this, how this is bad, and we don't always see it as bad, sometimes you just have to draw a comparison to something else, something that you might think, okay, yeah, that's bad. So let's imagine you're talking with somebody and you're trying to find out, oh, man, what do they believe? You know, are they Christians? They seem like they're living pretty good lives. And they tell you, oh, I actually believe in Jesus. You're like, oh. Great, you know, I had a feel like there's something about it. I was like, great, I have feelings. They believe in Jesus. And, so, and I actually also believe in the teachings of Joseph Smith and a Buddha to be able to save me. And then you go from yes to like, ah, no, not so good, right? Like you would say, that's not good. They would claim to believe in Jesus, right? And they would say, oh, I follow the teaching of Jesus. I live as Jesus would like me to live. But then I add all these teachings from these other religions. You would say, that's not the true gospel. That's not the real Jesus, right? You would be more correcting, you would, be, you would see that rightly. I lost my spot here. Yeah, you're not believing the real Jesus. So in the same way, if you say you trust in Christ for your salvation, plus works, right? You're not believing in the real Jesus. Christ plus, Christ plus anything will not save you. Only Christ alone will save you. And so Paul really is zealous that People would understand this. He fights for this. He bears suffering for this. But God is also zealous that this truth would be maintained. Okay, and why is God zealous for this? It's because God will not share his glory with any other, right? If you needed works or any other God to add to your salvation, to truly be saved, then who would deserve the glory? God and whatever else, right? It would be, even if it was 99% God and 1% you or 1% whatever other guy or deity you want to add to their salvation, you would be robbing God of his glory. God deserves all of your glory and your salvation. You do not deserve any of the glory. Nobody else deserves anything except for God and God alone because the glory belongs to our Savior and him alone. So true faith holds on to Christ, right? And leans on him and him alone. Anything short of justification by faith is a false gospel. So church, stand firm on that. 
Stand firm. Do not yield an inch, right? Even an inch to those who want to compromise the truth of the gospel. Because anything that aims to distort this truth will dishonor our Savior. So stand firm. Stand firm. And this is hard, right? And this is why Paul turns to the apostles and he finds strength and comfort because if we actually stand in this, we will face opposition. We will face opposition. We will be ridiculed. We will be estranged from friends and family. People will question our decisions. But the call for you is to believe this, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to repent of your sins, to believe that only Jesus can bring you to God and only through Christ can you can you receive forgiveness of sins? And to live as if that's true, right? Live as if it's true. Just quickly, let me just say, if you live as if like other people have to earn your approval, you're not living as Christ has loved you, right? Because Christ has loved you, not what you can give him, not on your works, but Christ loved you even when you were an enemy of him. So believe and trust. Believe and trust because we will face persecution. When you live for God, that it actually has implications practically, right? This actually matters. The decisions that you make will be affected by this. And one of those decisions is found in our passage. And that's the third point that we'll come to here this morning, is the, the, the issue, how Paul took his stance and how Paul and Titus took their stance was by saying no to circumcision. So verse 3 and 4. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek, and that because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So Titus, Paul did not have Titus get circumcised because of the enemies, right? There was a direct correlation, a direct link there. Because what did the enemies want to do? They wanted to spy out the freedom that they had in Christ and enslave them. Enslaved them. How can they be enslaved? How, could, how, how would doing this enslave Paul and Titus in their ministry? Well, the false prophets wanted an opportunity, right, to slander Paul in his ministry. They, Paul has been preaching justification by faith alone, and they're saying, you need to be circumcised. And now, here's an example. Here's Titus. Here's a Greek. You want him to be preaching with you. You want him to be a companion. What are you going to do, Paul? Are you really going to live and stand in your convictions that justification comes by faith and faith alone? Or will you give in? And will he get circumcised? They want to say, see, like what they, the enemies would really like to see is be able to spread this report. I right? saying, see, Paul preaches freedom from the law, and yet he forces the Gentiles that preach, it with him, that preach with him to get circumcised. And so therefore, Paul had to take a stance, right? Paul did not have Titus circumcised because his opponents were demanding it as a matter of salvation. They were hoping to use Titus' circumcision as a template, right? As like the thing, like, look, this is how Paul actually lives in his ministry. And so everybody would have to get circumcised and live by the law and not by faith. And so to combat that, right, Titus did not get circumcised. And now Titus became a living example, like a living picture of Paul's ministry and what it looks like to live by faith and faith alone. So living by the gospel will means that oftentimes you have to make hard decisions and decisions that people will not like because you trust in Christ. And you don't worry about your, your enemies. You don't worry about what people will think because you stand and you do it in obedience to Christ. Now, I've said all these things, right? Hopefully you've, you've heard me say you have to stand firm on the gospel. You have to stand firm. You cannot give an inch to the enemies when they want to distort the gospel. But now, I want to give you some help 
and help you think about how, well, how do you actually apply this? Because this isn't always as easy as we make it out to be. Right? These decisions often are hard, and what I want you to see is that they don't always look the same. They don't always look the same. So what does that mean? It's, it's not just straightforward path. It's not like we have somebody go through a, a Christian path and they have to do everything the exact same way as the next person. Right? It's not so much. And for that reason, for that, to see that and for you to be able to think about that, I want to actually look at Timothy. Timothy, so if you, why don't you turn with me, uh, Acts chapter 16. Uh, we'll just be in verses 1 through 3. But um, what we know, well, let me read it. How about that? Six, Acts 16, 1 through 3. Paul came also, before I go too far, and I forget, this is after the episode here we have with Titus, right? So Paul, standing firm, Titus does not have to get circumcised. You would think if you're somebody who's staying strong to your convictions and your principles, you would say, then nobody else should ever get baptized, right? If you're a Greek, nobody should ever be baptized, circumcised. Um, if, if, if you're a Greek, then clearly Paul will never have any other person from Greek descent get circumcised. So, verse 1 and 3. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, that his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and what? And circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. All right, hear the similarities between the two instances, right? So you have um, Paul and Timothy. Paul wanted both to accompany him in his ministry and preach and teach alongside him. Both were of Greek descent. The Jews... In this, both instances, both knew that Paul, that Titus and Timothy were both Greek and of Greek descent, and yet Paul's actions were different in the two instances. Okay? Is Paul being inconsistent, right, in the way that he applies the gospel? Has he now compromised? He fought so hard in Galatians 2, now he's like, ah, forget it, you know, it was hard enough back then in Galatians 2, now let's just make it easy for myself. Is that what Paul is doing? My point here is just be careful not to judge too quickly. Be careful not to judge too quickly. Because the truth is that even when these two situations seem really similar in a lot of the, the description, the principles that are at play, the greater principles, are both different. Okay? Both situations are different, and so Paul applies different principles to them. On the one hand, right, you have Titus. So we're talking about Titus. If Titus had gotten circumcised, that would have tainted the freedom of the gospel. The Jews were insisting, right? Titus needs to get circumcised. This is a matter of salvation. And they wanted to, they wanted to force Paul to draw a line and say, Which, where are you going to stand, Paul? But with Timothy, you actually don't have that. You don't have that at all. The passage, Acts tells us that the Jews were not against Paul or Timothy. They actually spoke highly of Timothy. This was, at this point, this was not a matter of salvation. And because of that, because the situations were so different, Paul was actually able to get Timothy to get circumcised without compromising the truth of the gospel. Right? Paul could do this now in love to try to make, maybe not even make it a stumbling block because this was now no longer a gospel issue. And so Paul didn't think circumcision was a bad thing. Okay? We see this. Circumcision was not a bad thing. Paul teaches about this plenty. 
Paul didn't oppose circumcision in every instance, right? And when we, what we think often is like, if one, we stand for one thing, we have to do it every other time, no matter what. But Paul was actually thinking highly. He's thinking of people. He's thinking in love. Circumcision could actually be a good thing. Could actually be a good thing. But you have to remember, it could never, ever be a savior. Right? And that's where Paul will always draw the line. It could never save you. When circumcision or when anything else got elevated to the role of a savior, Paul opposed it. And so now, part of being a Christian means you will have to stand for the gospel. You have to make sure that you stand and you want to make sure that you maintain the purity of the gospel. You stand firm and you do not give an inch to your enemies. But yet you can't force the principles always in every circumstance equally. Right? Love and truth have to inform how we act. There has to be wisdom that has to be applied. And so there may be good things, right? good principles and good things that you can do to live and honor God. Like circumcision could be a good thing. But again, if you elevate it and impose it upon others, you may be enslaving them. Right? And that's what we see the enslaving part. So there are just countless and countless and countless of ways that we can do this today. Right? Like just every topic almost that you can think of, you can just turn that into a gospel topic and you can enslave others with it if you're too forceful in it. So for example, worship, right? Your preferences of worship. You can have good, you know, you can have good reasons for why you prefer one thing or another, why you think one thing, you know, maybe worships God or distracts less. Like that is like, you should have some like ideas and preferences on worship. But when you elevate that and say like you are sinning by worshiping a certain way, that you may actually be enslaving other people. You're no longer giving them the freedom that the gospel gives them to worship God. Okay, questions like kids. Okay, we love kids in this church, right? We love kids. We think that they're a gift from God that you should try to have kids. But does that mean that everybody has to have as many kids as possible no matter what their circumstance is? No, like there's a good principle, but yet you apply it as you know in the context and the people in love and in wisdom. Okay, these are, these are things that you have to talk through. Okay, and that's what I want to get to. Don't be too quick. Be willing to talk about these things. Okay, things like medicine, right? Like we could all have different opinions on what medicine we should take for a certain thing. Okay, is it wrong? Or, or like, let's say, is it wrong to take medicine for things like anxiety or like depression? Is it always wrong? Or are you so committed to a principle that actually prevents you from loving people? I have a lot of other things, but I probably should just keep them to myself. There's a lot of things that you can do. But if you're not acting in love and you're just opposing, you're just forcing your principles without thinking about God and faith and thinking about the faith of your neighbor, you may be infringing upon their freedom and forcing them to make decisions that do not honor God. So because of the freedom that we have in the gospel, we can have unity, even in our differences. We can love brothers who defer on us on secondary matters. And we may even sometimes even change what we would do because we want to love those around us. Now, does that mean that we are compromised? Does that mean that we just kind of give away, you know, whatever people want to think, oh yeah, in love, I'll just let them do whatever it is that they want to do. Of course, of course not. Okay, I just maintain to you that you cannot give an inch on gospel matters. So you should never, ever compromise the truth of the gospel. So you think, well, okay, so give me some help, okay? Give me some help. How can I do this? You know, I feel like I have to maintain these principles, but then I feel like I'm being too rigid or I'm being too flexible. How, is there any guideline that you can give me? Let me give you two questions for you to think through, right? And these won't be exhaustive. This won't be everything that you need. You have the church. You have help. 
you know, to think through these things. So first question is, does this compromise the gospel message? Simple, right? If it compromises the gospel message in any way, just like, you know, Titus, Timothy and Titus, right? One was compromising the gospel message, one was not. Then you maintain the purity of the gospel. You do not give an inch. This, is, this does not become a matter of love. Second question. Does this, my belief in this, my insistence on this, does this bind someone's conscience on matters that are not core to the gospel? Right? Am I actually requiring people to live and do things that are enslaving them, that are principles that are not specifically tied to the gospel? So, you know, you may think this is necessary, right? You may think this is a good thing even, or like a wise thing to do. And be careful that if you elevate it to the issue of the gospel, you may enslave your brothers and sisters, um, and that would not be honoring to God. You may actually be living by, you may be living by works too, right? If you think that someone is not on your, to your level because they're no, not doing A, B, or C. And so two examples, just quickly for us to kind of, as we kind of wrap up, two examples we think through, right? So, can two men get married? No. Why? Isn't that, couldn't we, like, overlook that with love? That's what the world wants us to think, right? Love is love. No. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And so, when you distort God's purpose of marriage with abominations, you are actually compromising the gospel message. So, we stand firm. No. You take a firm stance and you say, no. The, the gospel requires me to love you and say no to you. Okay, on the other hand, how do you discipline your children, right? Can faithful Christians have different ways to be faithful to Scripture when it comes to disciplining your children? Yes, right? Yes, this is not a gospel issue. And so you would be wrong to impose your views on everybody else that this is the only way to be faithful to Christ in how you discipline your children. Because the world wants you to believe, right? Going back to the first example, anything flies in the name of love. Anything flies. And some, might, some of you might be... Uh, wanting to criticize me, and that I'm just going to say anything flies in the name of love. That's what the world wants you to think. Anything flies in the name of love. But that is the furthest thing that could be from the truth. Love has to maintain distinctions. Love is holy because God is holy. And so our duty to love our neighbor should never, ever, ever come at the expense of our faith and the purity of the gospel. Yet at the same time, don't be so quick to assume that somebody's compromised or that they're immediately wrong when they don't do something exactly the way that you do it. They may be wrong, and there may be conversations that need to happen. They may be wrong, right, because there are temptations everywhere, but sometimes it's not as simple as you think, right? These things require deep examination, and so be humble. Be humble to recognize that you would not, there are principles that you've held, just like I've held, that you don't hold to anymore because you've seen and you've grown and you've matured, and you say, I would not want to live as I used to live. Be humble to recognize that God is growing us, and God is making us more loving as a church. You may get criticized as being too harsh often or being too gracious. But again, don't let man's opinion sway you in your obedience to God. And to kind of wrap it up, Calvin says it this way. The duties of love to our neighbor ought never to be injurious to our faith. And therefore, in matters of indifference, the love of our neighbor will be our best guide, provided that faith shall always receive our first regard. So to conclude our time this morning, we have enemies on every side. We all have difficulties in our lives, temptations to give up, to say, this is too hard for me. 
How are you going to stand for truth today? Because that is what the call for you is to stand for truth today. Our strength is feeble. You cannot stand on your own. How are you going to make sure you don't run in vain? Well, follow God's command and Paul's example and hold fast to Christ. First and foremost, hold fast to Christ always. He will sustain you. He will confirm you. Never waver in your commitment to the gospel. And then as you do that, hold fast to God's people. Hold fast to the church. In the church, you will find comfort and strength to be willing to and to be able to walk and holding fast to Christ together. You don't have to do it alone. And then as you do that, you can love and wisdom and the fear of God while never sacrificing your beliefs or dishonoring Christ in the process because he will see us through. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious Father, thank you that you are strong. Lord, there is nothing that is too difficult for you. And when we are weak, we thank you that uh, we can run to you as our shelter, uh, that you would raise us up with wings as the eagle. Father, would you be with us? Would you help us to consider the ways in which we often want to uh, distort the uh, good news of the gospel that we have? Would you help us to um, actually love you? And would you help us to stand firm? Would you give us the wisdom and the discernment that we need to recognize how to help others live as you've called them to live in obedience and submission to you? And Lord, would you also help us to be humble in the process that we would not insist in our own way, in our own principles, in our own things that have been helpful to us as the things and the matters for salvation, that, that we would actually love um, those that you've given us to love. So would you help us? Uh, would you be with us? And we pray for all these things that they would bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.